There's been a significant tradition of feminist scholars writing academic commentaries on the Book of Judges. Uh, scholars like Marsha Dutton or Phyllis Tribble. Uh, Phyllis wrote the book Texts of Terror back in 1982, which was a feminist reading of four tragic portraits of suffering in ancient Israel. Uh, Phyllis, in her book, writes about Hagar and Tamar back in the book of Genesis. She writes about the daughter of Jephthah, we meet here in Judges this morning. And then later on in Judges, you may not yet be aware, but you will in a few weeks, uh, the tragic story of the unnamed concubine uh, later in Judges. The fact is, stories of women keep popping up in surprising ways in Judges, in a way that maybe they don't in other Old Testament books by and large. Uh, Deborah and Jael, you might remember them from a few weeks ago, uh, chapter 4, Heroic Women. And now this week, the horrific story, if you're listening, of a teenage girl with a tambourine. And I think largely Phyllis Tribble is right. This is a text of terror. You can speak to Bob Long afterwards who will give you a slightly different uh, angle on the story. Uh, But I'm persuaded this is a very ugly and terrifying story. Though the place I differ from Phyllis Tribble and other feminist readers is the thought that in any way that these stories are being endorsed, that in any way the patriarchy they represent is being endorsed or defended. Uh, that the actions of the men of Israel you see in Judges uh, are in any way being affirmed or admired. Because it seems clear to me, and I hope to you as well, that the actions we are looking at this morning are meant, I think, to be viewed with absolute horror by readers back then as much as by readers now. Readers who are men as much as readers who are women. And so there is tragedy today as we look at the deadly ambitions of Jephthah in Judges 10 to 12, an account so sad, an account so terribly disturbing that particularly as a dad I always find it hard to read and even harder to speak about. It is the tale of a man who holds on to all the wrong things, as I think men so often do. A man who ends up with everything he wanted and yet nothing of value. A tale that leaves us shaking our heads at the foolishness of one of the great judges of Israel. His name is Jephthah and he's a smooth talker. He is a deal maker and he trades the future of his family, the life of his daughter, for a stupid pledge based on a stupid ambition. Now Jephthah, as we first meet him, is a a guy from the wrong side of the tracks, which is maybe why he's so driven to prove himself That is often how it works. We first meet him in chapter 11, verse 1. A mighty warrior whose dad was Gilead and whose mother was a call girl, a prostitute. It is a patchwork family and uh, much as you find today, it doesn't always have the happy Brady Bunch kind of ending. Uh, You can see there Jephthah has got half-brothers. Gilead's wife also bears him sons. And when these half-brothers grow up, they want nothing to do with Jephthah, they run him out of town because they are not going to share their inheritance with the son of a prostitute, which again would kind of leave you with a chip on your shoulder, something to prove. And so verse 3 in chapter 11, he heads to the land of Tob, which ironically sounds almost identical to the Hebrew word for good, 
And yet this is not a good place at all. Before long, a gang of scoundrels gathers around him and they follow him, literally a group of empty men, guys with no substance, guys with no values, a Jephthah and his empty men ready for trouble, however it comes. Now at this point, if you've been here the last few weeks, uh, we're in the middle of another one of those famous cycles in the book of Judges. It's a cycle that in this case started back in chapter 10. If you've got a a real Bible here, you might like to flip back to it or uh, slide back on your phone. Uh, Chapter 10, exactly as we've seen before, Israel rebels against God. God hands them over to their enemies. Israel cries out for mercy and typically God will send them a saviour. Except, as you can maybe imagine by this time, it's wearing a little bit thin. The Israelites have been serving the Baals again and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And I reckon if anyone else happened to turn up with a god, I would guarantee the Israelites would be happy to worship that one as well. But there in chapter 10, they've apparently come to their senses, they've been crying out to God, But this time the cycle is subtly different. This time you'll notice there is no evidence of God appointing the judge. It's just kind of assumed. The elders of Gilead in verse 5 seem to decide it for themselves. The Ammonites are oppressing them. And they have already said at the end of chapter 10, whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be head of all those living in Gilead. God, you'll notice, says nothing. Let's offer power as an incentive to get someone to lead us into battle. What could possibly go wrong? See, offer power, attract ambition. Offer power, attract Jephthah with a point to prove. He's building up a reputation as a mighty warrior with his team of empty man mercenaries. And God says nothing. Trouble is, there are no other volunteers. And so having driven him out of town as a teenager, his embarrassed brothers and the town elders come crawling back in chapter 11, verse 6, come and be our commander so we can fight against the Ammonites. And Jephthah pushes back. Aren't you the same guys who drove me out? Why come to me now? But they're desperate and they insist, come and be our commander, you will be our head. Chapter 11, verse 8. Over all who live in Gilead. Now here's a great temptation. I mean, what a comeback. Uh, My mate Al struggles with dyslexia and he still remembers the day his principal said to him at school, son, you're a failure, you will never amount to anything. Al has had a career as an incredibly successful builder. But, you know, he says not a day goes by that he doesn't think back to those words, which he's spent his life proving wrong. It's terrible to be driven like that. So here's Jephthah, you see, driven out of town, and now they're saying to him, if you come back and lead us and fight and win, you can come back in glory. If you fight and win, you'll be our number one man. Better double check he's heard it right. Verse 9. Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. 
will I really be your head? Because there's nothing he wants more. So verse 11, Jephthah goes with the elders of Gilead and the people make him head and commander over them and they pledge before God. Now all he needs, you see, is a big win to seal the deal. And from leader of Gilead, he's actually got bigger ambitions, king over all of Israel. Now will you notice verses 14 to 27, we skipped over these verses in the reading, but uh, in that section Jephthah is the ultimate deal maker, or at least he tries to be. Jephthah wants to negotiate, he wants to make peace. He sends messengers to the Ammonite king, camped outside Gilead. He says, let's talk things through. You can read through the details later. But the fact is the king of Ammon is not impressed. Verse 28, the king of Ammon paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him, no deal. So verse 30, another angle. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. He's fired up by God's righteous power, as past leaders have been. What more could you want? He's advancing against the Ammonites. Seems like a certain win. But for Jephthah, do you notice, it seems like that's not enough. Jephthah wants to tie it down. Because Jephthah, at this point, would give anything to get ahead. Anything, no matter what the cost, he would give anything in exchange for his own success, or so it seems. So Jephthah makes a deal with God. I mean, who said God needed a deal at this point? Whoever said God makes deals anyway? This is kind of a one-sided deal, you know, get me out of this one and I'll be a missionary, that sort of thing except I think a whole lot dumber. Verse 30, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. I will give anything to make it to the top. You've got to say, that is incredibly dumb, isn't it? Especially since the Lord's got the battle under control already. I mean, it was always God's plan to save Israel when they repent. And, and it's not as if you can turn God on and off like a tap, in spite of what some Christians might want to say even today. It's not, not as if you have, somehow, if you squeeze out more faith or more prayers or go to church more or put more in the collection. It's not as if crawling up the steps of a cathedral in Rome on your knees is going to help, even though so many Christians over the centuries have done that as a vow. It's not as if any vow that you can make is going to change God's mind or buy his favour. But Jephthah has opened his big mouth and he's going to face the consequences. But one thing is for sure, you see, this is a guy who will sacrifice anything to make it to number one. Maybe you know people like that. Maybe you are one. In this case, the consequences are too horrific to even think about. Because Jephthah, you see, has an incredible victory and then he turns for home. Now, what was he thinking is going to come out the door to greet him when he gets home? I mean, is he thinking it might be a chook or the dog? Does he keep cows inside or what? 
Because what comes out to meet him in verse 34 but his beautiful young daughter excited to see her dad. I mean, this, this is tragic. His only child playing a tambourine. Jephthah is made a vow to the Lord. Whatever comes out my door to meet me, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering. Jephthah will sacrifice anything to make it to the top. Jephthah will walk over anyone to make it to number one. That's the sort of guy we're dealing with here. He's had his win. Now to pay the cost. And of course, when he sees her, he rips his clothes and cries, Oh no, my daughter, you've brought me down and I'm devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. As if it was her fault. Which is maybe the most horrific part of the story. Blaming the victim. And yet she says, my father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. See, this is an honour culture and a vow is a vow. Richard and Belinda Nissel last week put us onto a Netflix show called The Grand Hotel, set in Spain in the early 1900s, when gentlemen still challenged one another to duels, pistols at 12 paces, And the honour culture meant you would literally rather die than decline or break a vow. Better dead than bring shame to your family. It's like that. His daughter says you've made a vow so you've got to do what you said even if it means killing me. I mean, This is a tragedy. It's like the sort of thing you hear when someone accidentally backs their four-wheel drive over the baby in the driveway except this time on purpose this beautiful young girl dancing with joy to see a dad home from battle and he said to God he's prepared to sacrifice her to guarantee he'll get ahead and so after she spends some time in the hills with her friends to say goodbye he did to her as he vowed and the young women of Israel says verse 40 have commemorated her every year since It's striking, I think, that in all of this, God does not say a word. Stunned silence. See, why in a million years would Jephthah think God would want him to do that? Vow or not? Doesn't he know? Sacrificing children is what the nations round about them do. It is absolutely abhorrent to God. God has made it perfectly clear already back in Deuteronomy 12, verse 31. Spelled it out in black and white. Now take a look at the words on the screen. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their God. The Canaanites you're here to replace, that's what they do which is exactly what Israel is not to do. Who would ever even think about sacrificing their kids to get ahead? But Jephthah does it anyway, thinking somehow it's a matter of honour, thinking somehow God's pleased with him when in reality, in his ambition to get to the top, he's gone as low as you can go and totally switched the price tags on what's important and what's not. 
Now, let's quickly mop up before we stop to think things through, because chapter 12, which we're meant to cover this morning, we will briefly, there's a civil war, if you uh, run your eye through the chapter. Ephraim is one of the northern tribes of Israel, and the Ephraimites say, how dare you go off winning victories without us? And they're offended. And they call out their forces and they march against Jephthah. They say, why did you go fighting the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn your house down over your head. Because their suspicion is, you see, Jephthah has gone it alone because of his ambition. And they're right. So verse 4, Jephthah calls together the men of Gilead and they fight against the Ephraimites, a bloody battle, brother against brother, tribe against tribe. Uh, The Gileadites with Jephthah strike them down because the Ephraimites have said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. And so they systematically cut them down, verse 5. Even the survivors, they check them out for their regional dialect and kill them if they can't pronounce their S's properly. 42,000 Ephraimites killed brother Israelites massacred by Jephthah, who again proves he is willing to sacrifice anything to make sure he's number one. And in the end, he gets exactly what he wants. Verse 7 is his crowning moment in chapter 12, leader not just of Gilead but all of Israel. He's a strong man, he's made it to the top. And Jephthah led Israel for six years. But you do need to read on. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. So Jephthah gave everything to make it to the top. Jephthah would sacrifice anyone to be the king of Israel. And he got it. Then he died, unmourned, childless, no descendants, and only six years at the top to enjoy it. Now I wonder if thinking about Jephthah brings a contrast to mind of what a real leader of God's people should look like. I mean, apart from grieving the injustice, apart from the terror of an ancient text like this, apart from the terrible picture of patriarchy and pride and sacrificing your kids on the altar of ambition, doesn't it make you long for something better? You might remember uh, over these past weeks we've been seeing how the Old Testament scriptures Uh, make up what we've been calling episode two of the Bible's big story. That the old covenant scriptures are meant to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so the pointer should move along to remind us of that and there we are. A wisdom that maybe comes from that sense of longing for something better. Someone to follow, perhaps, who's not driven by that sort of deadly ambition at the cost of everybody else. Jephthah is a guy who will sacrifice anything, who will sacrifice anyone to be king. He says so himself, whatever comes out the door. Do you notice the true king of Israel, when he comes, the true king of God's people is the exact opposite of that? The real king of Israel comes to sacrifice himself for the sake of others instead of sacrificing others for the sake of himself. It couldn't be more different. 
And if you don't get that, you've missed the whole point in a sense of being a Christian and a new covenant person. Mark 10 verse 35, it's, it's a famous passage when James and John come to Jesus. Uh, James and John who want to make it to the top. They've been with Jesus since the start. They've seen enough of Jesus to know he's going to make it big. and They want to be there with him. James and John sidle up to Jesus privately. They say, teacher, there's something we want you to do for us. They say, let one of us sit on your right and the other one at your left in your glory. They say, when you make it to the top, take us with you. To which Jesus says, you guys have totally missed the point. And there's a beautiful irony there because those places on his right and his left, just a few chapters later in Mark's Gospel, they've been reserved for two criminals on two other crosses, one on his right and one on his left. James and John don't know what they're asking for. So listen in as Jesus gives them them an unambiguous lesson on kingship, what it means in the kingdom of God to make it to number one. Take it in. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, they will walk over anyone to get to first place. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. If you want to be first in the kingdom of God, first is at the far end of the line. For even the Son of Man, says Jesus in verse 45, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's what a real king of God's people is going to look like, not in, in Jephthah who will sacrifice anyone to make it to the top, but in the Lord Jesus who will sacrifice himself in exchange for his people. Jephthah was the man who would sacrifice anything to get what he wanted. Jesus is the man who will sacrifice everything of himself to give us what we needed. And very directly he is saying, if you are coming with me as part of my new covenant people, then you'll do the same. If you're coming with me, then stop trying to climb over everyone else. Stop sacrificing the people around you and make it your ambition to serve instead of your ambition to rule. Make it your ambition to sacrifice yourself instead of sacrificing others. How is it with you? So I wonder perhaps what you've been prepared to destroy in the name of ambition. I wonder who you've been prepared to ruin to get what you want. Maybe at work, ruthless ambition, stealing credit for other people's efforts, inserting yourself wherever there's a chance for glory. Worse, Maybe your family. Maybe you've already sacrificed your own kids or your marriage on the altar of career and ambition. The irony is, you know, so often people in that situation, they say all the way along that they're doing it for their kids. 
never home, tense all the time, ignoring the kids as they grow up because you're just too busy chasing your own ambitions. And so you just don't notice perhaps what they're getting into or the sort of friends they're hanging out with and you're just too busy to love them as you know you should. There are other texts of terror today too. As a culture, we're prepared to sacrifice our kids in a more obvious way, though we pretend not to notice. So it's not convenient to be pregnant right now. It doesn't fit our career plans, our mortgage. Will we keep it or not? As if it's a casual choice. Whichever way it goes, remember Jesus who instead of sacrificing others, sacrificed himself. Because in the end you might get exactly the success you've been aiming for. You've gained the world and lost your soul. Not you. Be warned, burn the horrible picture of the sacrificial daughter into your mind And let it keep reminding you, some people sacrifice anything to get to the top. Jesus sacrificed himself and made it to the bottom and calls on you and me to do the same. Now, one more final thought just before we close. Slightly different angle. Just be reminded as we finish up that one of the best things I reckon Jesus has done is that he has made it clear once and for all that you don't have to do deals with God. Not that we ever did. But Jephthah somehow thought so. Just just a vow, just a sacrifice and he'll let me win. He'll give me what I want. Which is another way isn't it, of saying, well, I will buy something from God. I will earn something from God. He will be in my debt. I can make things go my way just by pressing the right buttons, just by praying the right prayers for long enough, often enough, over and over again enough. There, there was a book a few years ago now called The Prayer of Jabez. It was a bestseller in the Christian world. A book that promised exactly that. Pray this prayer every day for 30 days and God would have to deliver and enlarge your boundaries. Jesus at the cross makes it very clear There is no more sacrifice needed. There is nothing more you need to do. It's not a karma system because he's paid everything already. And so there's not a credit system for every good thing you do and a demerit for every bad thing. And there's not a pilgrimage you can go on, the hajj, that makes the slightest bit of difference. And God's love for you and his intentions for you, they are not shaped in the slightest by whether or not you eat meat on a Friday or you're tough on yourself or you deny yourself for Lent or you sacrifice whatever comes out your front door. That is all negated, that is neutralised by the gospel of Jesus who sacrificed himself once and for all for us. Which is very good news for you and me. 
and lets us just trust him and rest without being tormented by either restless ambition or constant fear. No need to make deals with God because the final deal has been signed and sealed already.